Well, folks, you're probably aware by now that we have been preaching through the first part of Luke's gospel, chapters 1 through to chapter 9. And if you've been reading along in the reading plan, you will have been reading a passage of Scripture from Luke chapter 6, verse 27, through to chapter 7 and verse 35. We're actually going to be reading today from Luke chapter 6, verse 46 through to 49. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Do feel free to turn to that there if you would like to do so, either if you've got your Bibles with you or you want to open one of the apps on your phones or tablets. But we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 6, 46 to 49. And um, if you, like me, went to Sunday school when you were a kid, you could probably sing a song about this particular parable, but I will save you from that today and save myself as well. Um, But we pick up the reading at verse 46 in chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Some of you uh, will know that once upon a time I worked as a fundraiser for an international housing charity called Habitat for Humanity. They were based here in Banbury for quite some time. In fact, they were born, their presence in this country was born out of this church. In fact, it was founded by David, who led us in our act of remembrance today. Now, I had a a brilliant job. I loved my job at Habitat for Humanity. As I say, I was a, a fundraiser there, but part of my wider brief involved taking volunteers and donors overseas to see and participate on the projects that they were supporting. It's fair to say I was a better fundraiser than a builder. I have to say that there. If any of you have worked on me on DIY projects before, that will not surprise you. I was a decent fundraiser, not so good um, at building, but I enjoyed the overseas trips and working as a volunteer on building projects. A number of my trips um, took me out to Kenya, and I know we've got quite a few Kenyans as part of our church here. And on one particular uh, trip to Kenya, I ended up in a, in a location that had a rich supply of a, a type of rough stone that was used both to construct the houses and also the foundations on which they were to be built upon. A, li- a little bit like um, that picture there that I'm showing you. Now, on this particular trip, it was actually a, a group of volunteers from a Methodist church in Abergavenny. And I have to say they were at the, um, the older age of the spectrum. I was the youngest um, member of the group by quite some distance. And I participated on a lot of um, build projects during my time with Habitat for Humanity. But this one was the toughest physically. It was the toughest because we spent the entire time working on the foundations. 
That involved digging the trenches for the foundations and moving tons of these beautiful rough stones from the edge of the building site into the foundations of the building itself. The build lasted for 10 days, and I have to say there were a few aching bodies after the end of the the trip. Not mine, of course, because I was a supervisor. I just told them where the bricks needed to be moved (laughs) from, and no, I'm only joking. Of course, I rolled my sleeves up and, and jumped in. But the thing was, I remember from the, the, the trip, by the end of the, the 10 days of solid work, it didn't look like we'd achieved anything. And it wasn't actually until months and months later that we had pictures sent through of the, um, the home completed, and it looked beautiful. As it constructed out of these rough cut stones, it was a, a work of real, real beauty. But of course, you and I both know that the time we spent on the foundations, that wasn't wasted time. In fact, that is the most important part of the build process, isn't it? Jesus says as much in the reading today. If you build something that doesn't have a foundation, it's not going to last. The long-term integrity of the building of the home is dependent upon the structure. And Jesus' message in this parable is clear. Foundations are important. They can, if well built, withstand and protect that which is built on them, even in the midst of storms and floods and torrents. If it's well built, that structure will stand. Now, I have to say, I trust what Jesus has to say in everything that he says it has to be said, but particularly in this, because Jesus was a guy who worked on construction. You have probably read in the Gospels or heard someone say that Jesus was a carpenter, uh, and that's what some of our translations render the, the word, but, but a better rendering, a better understanding of um, his job title is as a construction worker. I think when we hear carpenter, we get the image of some kind of modern-day hipster who likes his barista coffees a particular way, you know, out in his man shed, creating all sorts of beautiful things. Not to say that these guys don't have value and worth, and they normally do have beards. I do imagine Jesus with a beard as well, but not necessarily a, a hipster type of beard. But when you're thinking of Jesus... This is probably a better image to keep in in mind. Working with his dad, he was probably a member of a construction crew, possibly working on the many building projects that we know were going on throughout first century Palestine when Jesus was around, to the extent that they're still there today. And that's an intriguing thought, isn't it, for those of you who have perhaps visited the Holy Land, some of those structures that have withstood the time, may have involved Jesus working on them themselves. So when Jesus speaks of buildings built on strong or weak foundations, withstanding or succumbing to floods, he's speaking from first-hand experience. But of course, in the parable, the foundations that Jesus speaks about aren't literal Though there probably is wisdom taking his words literally if you're building something, build on a strong foundation. But this is what Jesus says in our reading today. Anyone who comes to me, hears my words, and puts them into practice is like a man building a house who took the time to dig down deep, 
like I did with the volunteers on that build in Kenya, and laid a foundation on rock. Sometimes you have to shift a lot of dirt in order to find the rock that you need to build upon. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but could not shake it. I have this picture of the flood. It's trying to shake the house. It's trying to knock it down, but it couldn't. Why? Well, because it was well built. I want a picture for our lives. When storms come, when perhaps there are things going on in our lives that we sense that there is a personal attack, that someone or something is trying to shake the house that is our lives, it cannot overcome you if your foundation is well built. Now, the parable itself comes at the end of the longest block of teaching that we have in Luke's gospel. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. It's parallel in Matthew's gospel, of course, is the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, the foundation that Jesus is referring to, he says, are hearing his words and putting them into practice. Jesus says that is a foundational act. Now, if you've been reading through the sermon this week, you will perhaps have picked up on a number of emphases that, that, that Jesus stresses. I just want to kind of summarize them for us today. But as he preaches, the stress in the sermon falls amongst other places on how to treat others. You will have read that there. The interaction between ourselves and others is very, very important, Jesus says. And within the sermon, we, the disciples, are called to a gracious, a loving, and forgiving way of life. It's one of the stresses of the sermon. The sermon calls disciples also to, to not be preoccupied with the spiritual condition of others, but rather to be diligent about one's own righteousness, one's own right standing with God. So you will have read that absurd issue. Don't be trying to remove a speck in your neighbor's eye when you've got a big whopping plank coming out of yours. Jesus is brilliant at telling these little stories that make a, a dramatic point with exaggerated language. He, he is, in many respects, a stand-up comedian. His audience would be rolling about. He's using comedy to make a point. As to in our parable today, of course you're not going to build something, a house, for example, and not attend to the foundation. It is absurd. Jesus goes on and he says that disciples are called to be ready to love, even with what appears to be a self-sacrificing and non-self-protective level of forgiveness. We read the words of this sermon and it is a high bar that disciples are called to. But in other words, Jesus is calling us to a way of life that seems at best unnatural, at worst, downright nonsensical. I don't know if you can remember, perhaps in your non-Christian days, if you are a Christian, meeting people who have just been great representatives of Jesus and being attracted to their life, but thinking, there's something not quite right about that person, and I can't quite put my finger on it. It's that kind of unnatural way of living that Jesus calls his disciples to that stands out in the cut and thrust of life. 
But Jesus gives us a reason why we, his disciples, can live this kind of unnatural way of life. And he assures us that one day, God is going to deal justly with all people. He assures us that even when we are wronged, and even when his people are persecuted, that you don't have to take matters into your own hands. We are to trust that God in his ultimate righteous judgment will take care and deal with evil. He will ensure that it gets its proper and just reward. We, for example, don't have to take vengeance into our own hands. And it is the sermon's emphasis upon hope and God's ultimate justice that lays the groundwork, the foundation for the type of life we disciples are called to live. We're not just called to live this way in order to enter into some kind of self-help program, some self-improvement program. No, it's grounded in what God is going to one day do for this earth and its inhabitants. Jesus points us to something beyond the here and now. And of course, as Jesus always does, he goes on to embody this sermon in his own ultimate act of self-giving love. Jesus always practices what he preaches. They're backed up by his own lived example. And he offers them to us as the foundation upon which we are to build our own lives. In some respects, that's a relatively easy thing to process, at least mentally in our own minds. We get what Jesus is saying. But more is going on throughout this passage than perhaps is obvious to the eye, at least initially. Jesus tells us that before Jesus preached the sermon, that he went out to a mountainside to pray. We thought about this earlier on in the year, how Luke stresses the fact that, that, that Jesus prays, that Jesus is a man of prayer, that was a part of who he was. It was a part of his approach to life. Luke has more references to Jesus at prayer than all the other gospel writers. So it wouldn't, and it shouldn't surprise us, that he mentions that before this important sermon, Jesus went up to the mountainside to pray, spent the night praying to God. That, that's what I do every single Saturday night. I'm terrified with Sunday and the prospect of Sunday. I find myself up the mountain at the edge of Banbury saying, oh Lord, it's almost Sunday. They're going to be here again. I don't know what I'm going to say. Please, please help me. And um, sometimes he answers that, that prayer. But we read that Jesus went up. He spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated his apostles. If you've been reading along in the little commentary, the little commentary that I'm using as part of our series, the Tom Wright Look for Everyone, Tom Wright gives us a little hint of what Jesus is doing here. And he says he's tapping into Jewish memory. So for example, if you have read through your Old Testament, or even if you've just read through books like Genesis or Exodus, the number 12 will prompt something in your mind. Where have we come across the number 12 before? Of course, 
There were 12 tribes of Israel called out of Egypt. The number of Jesus' apostles. And the word apostle in its very basic sense means sent out ones. Jesus is called to himself amongst his wider group of disciples, 12 apostles, those who are, are almost being sent out as royal ambassadors. But we, we're alive to the fact that something is going on here. Jesus, in his own subtle way, is pointing his disciples back to a, an earlier memory, 12 apostles, 12 tribes of Israel. Luke also tells us that Jesus went up the mountain to pray and meet with God before returning to teach the people. Again, you might be thinking, I've heard something similar to that before. Who else did this? Well, you probably remember, if you haven't even read through the stories yourself, maybe in your days in Sunday school if you were sent there, who else did this? Well, Moses, of course. Moses went up the mountain, met with God, returned with the Ten Commandments, for example, and addressed the the people. And what Luke is potentially hinting hinting at here is that Jesus has come to the Israel of his day as as a new Moses. And this gives us a little bit of a clue as to the type of work Jesus came to do. Now, to understand that, we need to just think back very quickly to the original Moses. And the story is pretty well known, isn't it? Most people, even people who don't come to church, probably understand the basics of the Moses story. They probably watched The Prince of Egypt, but I might be showing my age by referencing a very, very dated thing nowadays. But Moses, we cast our minds back, was the man who led the Hebrew people to freedom from slavery. He helped to form them into a new community of people. And this new community of people who were freed from the chains of slavery were shaped into a community of people whose primary calling was to serve and love the Lord their God. And this community was formalized, it was constituted, it was brought into being, it came into existence, the Old Testament tells us, at the bottom of a mountain. So I wonder if you're getting those little connections. The mountain that the Hebrews met at the bottom of was called Sinai. And this is the mountain, as I've already mentioned, upon which Moses received the the Ten Commandments and a whole lot more. Now, if I'm right in this suggestion, then can we see what Luke is hinting at by saying that Jesus went up the mountainside to pray to God, to call 12 apostles and then teach his new community? Can you get the little hint that Luke is saying in terms of, here we have amongst us is a new Moses who's come on one hand to do something quite similar but greater in breadth and scope. Let's cast our minds back briefly to Sinai itself. And you can read about this in the book of Exodus. We read this terrifying story of God coming down upon the mountain to meet with the Hebrews. And during this time, he establishes something with them called a covenant, a binding covenant. It's a little bit like a marriage ceremony. He pledged himself to his people, and his people pledged themselves to him. 
And at that ceremony, just as in a, in a, in a wedding ceremony, two become one and a new entity is formed, well, the same thing happened. A new group of people who were the people of God were brought into existence. I've been reading through the book of Exodus lately, and um, I, I read something about the event that I'm talking about that shed new light upon what was going on then. And I pick up the, the quote. It is specifically here at Sinai that we find the classic expression of an idea unique to the Bible, that the religious situation is a partnership, a reciprocal relationship between God and humankind. I just want to let that hang there for a moment. If you ever read through the Old Testament, it's a difficult, difficult collection of books and stories to read and to make sense of. And in our modern ears, we are sometimes very, very quick to dismiss it. But we are on sacred ground when we are walking amongst the words of those texts because they contain ideas and thoughts that were the first of their kind. And one of them is this. An idea that first finds expression in our scriptures, that the religious situation, that the people who are religious, people like you and I, well, it's a partnership, a reciprocal relationship between God and people. Now, think about that for a moment, because on the face of it, this is a paradoxical idea. We in the Christian faith have, we perhaps have grown familiar with language like this, and we have lost a sense of the radical and revolutionary idea that God would partner with people, that God would enter into reciprocal relationship with people. This is groundbreaking theology and thought. But in what conceivable way does the creator of the universe need, require, depend upon the partnership of human, human beings? In what ways is God dependent upon humans reciprocating relationship with him. We understand that we need partnership. We humans understand that in order to thrive in life, we need to reciprocate in relationship. But, but God? Let me pose a different question. What is there that human beings can do that God himself cannot do without human help? The good orthodox answer to that is nothing. God, of course, can do everything, I hear you say. But there's one thing that he can't do without human help. And the short answer to that question is live within the human heart. There is one thing that God Almighty cannot do without your help and my help. He cannot live in your heart or my heart without our permission, without our say-so, without our help. He's not able to do that without our consent and cooperation. A partnership, a reciprocal relationship is needed. And that's what was going on in Sinai. And I think when we bear that in mind, I think that that thought perhaps takes us close to the beating heart of Jesus' sermon on Sinai. 
the plane. The type of disciple he describes here in these verses, well, it needs the living God to live in their heart. It's not possible to live in the way that Jesus describes without being inhabited in the inside by God. And Jesus, we are told, Jesus tells us that he has come to make that possible. A disciple, Jesus says, is one who comes to God, not just to receive from him, though we do, but ultimately to respond to him in an open-hearted manner, as you would perhaps a friend, as you do in the process of falling in love. This is something that cannot be coerced or manipulated because it takes away from what the act ultimately is. And a disciple, Jesus will say, is someone who understands that they're called into a partnership with God, a reciprocal relationship with Him, and to a way of, re- of life that reflects Him and who He is. I love that idea that what Jesus is unpacking for us is an invitation to help God do the one thing that he cannot do without our help, and that's to live inside human hearts. And this isn't just a philosophical conundrum. God Almighty requires our help in order to accomplish that. God Almighty himself condescends and requests entrance into our lives. And in doing so, calls us into a partnership to extend that invitation to everybody and anybody. It's our job as disciples to make a good case for God, to warm up others to the prospect that they too might invite him into their hearts. This is a way of life that has opened up to us and to everybody who wants it by Jesus. And he's made it possible for anyone to have a new foundation, a strong foundation. And that new foundation, Jesus says, is his words living in our hearts and shaping the way we live our lives. A heart that is inhabited by God himself. I'm going to invite the band just to make the way back up to the platform. But as I do so, perhaps you would just quietly read the words from our text today. I'll give you a moment or two just to read through them quietly yourself. And then we're going to read them together. But be alive to what Jesus is saying to you through his word this day. And if you're able, stand with me as we read them together. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they're like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. And let us pray together. Heavenly Father, build a firm foundation in our lives. May that foundation be your words in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Christoph.